Yo, this episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, was made possible by Global Blood Therapeutics and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Visit GBT.com to learn more. What's up, Warriors? It's Dr. Z and Dr. Mike here with another episode of Cheat Codes. What's going on, Dr. Mike? Uh, We got a great guest with us today, Dr. Z. Dude, I am so excited. We've got a tremendous guest, a guest that I didn't think we would be able to get on our our podcast. Yeah, so uh, why don't you let the Warriors know who we're going to be talking to today? So I'm excited. We're going to talk to Dr. Jeremy Estep, who is from St. Jude's Children's Research Center in Memphis, Tennessee. He's a pediatric hematologist who's been working at St. Jude's as a faculty since 2012 and is a clinical researcher and uh, treats patients with sickle cell disease. He's an accomplished guy. He's had ASH Scholar Awards and NIH funding, and he does a lot of research on genetic environmental impacts on sickle cell disease and optimizing hydroxyurea, novel therapies in sickle cell disease, and just a really cool guy and uh, so excited to talk to him today. Happy to have you on, Dr. Jeremy. Why don't you say hello to our warriors? Hello, warriors. Hello, Dr. Mike, and hello, Dr. Z. It is a a privilege and an honor to be here today. It's going to be a fun day. For sure. Yeah, I, I totally agree, man. Thank you. Thank you for making time for us. You know, despite all of his, uh, uh, accolades and accomplishments. I only know. I know. I know Dr. Jeremy as one thing. I know him as Mr. Worldwide. That's what I call him. <laughs> I don't know the backstory there. I... I mean, he's basically a celebrity. You know, I've given him this moniker of Mr. Worldwide, and and that's what he's always going to be for me. You know, it makes sense because he's doing all this global health outreach for St. Jude now too. So that's true. I'm not sure that I live up to the to the moniker, but lots of love for you giving it to me. <laughs> all right, so we are going to jump into this episode, which is going to be an episode that really looks at research in a very unique way. We're going to talk about some very interesting things, and we're going to let Dr. Jeremy talk about uh, some of his work that he's doing at St. Jude. Uh, Are you guys ready to jump into it? Absolutely. I'm ready. Let's do it. So our next segment is always my favorite part of Cheat Codes. This is where Dr. Z tells us what's happening. And he goes through his uh, Snapchats and his TikToks and his Facebook or just a a story about something important. Um, So what do you got for us today, Dr. Z? Uh, I've got a good one, man. We often hear warriors referring to the Tuskegee study as it relates to research uh, amongst the black community. And I thought, why not spend some time today talking about Tuskegee and, and, and actually what happened and why it's important to us in medicine today. And I'm really happy that we've got you know, Dr. Jeremy on with us because he's a bona fide expert in clinical trials and research and um, I think is, is is heavily involved in in research regulations at his institution at St. Jude. So so we'll get his input along the way as we talk about the story. So I'm going to take us back into a, um, I'm going to put us in a time machine if that's okay with you guys. We're going to jump to 1832, and in 1832, the first European settlers, sort of the first European American immigrants, come to Macon County, Alabama. And they are met by an indigenous people called the Creek people that they're, they're called uh, at that time by the settlers. And this comes after the passing of the Indian Removal Act in 1830. So these Creek people get moved to an Indian territory west of the Mississippi. 
And as these new settlers begin to sort of get things going in Macon County, Alabama, they start setting up cotton plantations and start purchasing slaves and building up their community in Macon County. And as time goes on, you know, between 1832, coming into sort of the early 1900s, a lot of the African-American, a lot of the slaves were then trying to desperately escape sort of legal segregation and trying to get out of this really bad situation that they were in. Many of them moved north and Midwest to try to find some peace from from all of this nonsense that they were sort of forcibly uh, put into. But many remained, many, many remained in Macon County, Alabama, which is still to this day a rural county in Alabama and and, and only has one really main city called Tuskegee. We, we find ourselves then coming a hundred years later to the fall of 1932, where Tuskegee in Macon County, Alabama starts seeing flyers put up all over the city that says, We have a special treatment for colored people with bad blood. These signs clutter the city, but but this black population that's already in economic despair, going through the Great Depression, sees some promise. They see um, a study that's offering them free meals and free health care and free treatment for bad blood and, and free burial insurance when things go wrong. Dr. Z, what's bad blood? That's a really good question. So bad blood is never defined to the participants in this trial. They're told they may have bad blood and there's a treatment for bad blood, but they're never told specifically what that bad blood may be. What we come to find out now, obviously, and what what, what the United States Public Health Service at that time knew is the bad blood they were trying to study was syphilis. And this is coming at a time when venereal disease and and particularly syphilis probably was afflicting 35 to 40 percent of the population in Macon County, Alabama. So in 1932, we start seeing these flyers come through. And now this black population that is trying to find as many resources as they can start signing up for this study. All in all, 600 black men sign up for the Tuskegee experiment. And it's found that 399 of them have syphilis. And the ones that don't are used as controls. And the goal of this experiment this whole time was, coming from the U.S. Public Health Service, what does syphilis do to the human body? How does it ravage the human body? What are the what are the problems that are associated with syphilis when it's not treated? And at this time, there's really no treatment for syphilis in the 30s. They're using basically different types of metals that are getting injected into people. The study was meant to last six months, a year. But as we know, this study lasted from 1932 to 1972. 40 years this went on. Patients were given ineffective medications with no documented sort of efficacy, with no documented ability to fix syphilis and being told that their bad blood was being cured. Along sort of the same lines, they're given access to a nurse who helps to increase their show rates at appointments. This nurse is now giving them hot meals and driving them in a nice shiny car to appointments and delivering their medications that don't work. And this is obviously really beneficial to people that don't have access to hot meals and and this type of service that's being provided to them now. In 1934, a list of all these subjects is given to doctors in Macon County, Alabama. And those doctors are told, if these patients show up to you, don't treat them for syphilis. We don't want these patients treated for syphilis. It's going to ruin what we're trying to find in this experiment. In 1940, that list is shared with the Alabama Health Department 
with the same instructions given by the U.S. Public Health Service. We are not to treat syphilis in these individuals. In 1941, a good proportion, almost 200 patients enrolled in this study, are drafted. And when they're found to be positive for syphilis, they're discharged from military service in lieu of being treated for syphilis. Now, remember, the original premise of this study was people from Macon County, Alabama, who have syphilis will not seek treatment. So we can watch disease progression. What actually ended up happening is we have a population of folks who are being given a fake treatment, a treatment that supposedly works. So why would they seek treatment? And what, what ends up happening is a self-fulfilling prophecy where, where patients certainly aren't seeking treatment because they feel like they're already being treated. In 1943, the Henderson Act is passed. And this is a, a government act that mandates the testing and treatment of venereal disease from public funds pushed by the United States Public Health Service. While simultaneously, the United States Public Health Service is withholding treatment to the black community in Macon County, Alabama. In 1945, we learn that penicillin is the standard of care for syphilis and treats syphilis at any stage of its disease course. The United States Public Health Service then generates rapid treatment centers for syphilis, but continues to withhold penicillin from all the individuals in the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. Despite their best efforts, though, by 1952, 30% of the patients that had syphilis were treated outside of this sort of study environment. In 1965, the U.S. Public Health Service is asked, why aren't patients being treated with penicillin now that we know it works? We've known for now 20 years that it works. And their response is, well, because it's too late at this point to treat them. An incorrect statement. Now, something really interesting happens in 1966. A 27-year-old social worker from San Francisco named Peter Buxton comes along and he says, wait a minute, this is nonsense. What, what's happening here is wrong. So in 1966, he files a complaint to the U.S. Public Health Service and follows that up in 1968 and nothing happens. They tell him the experiment's not complete, so we have to keep going. And finally, he gets sick of it and he tells the Associated Press in 1972 that the black community in Macon County, Alabama is being experimented on and being withheld life-saving treatment. The story comes out on the front page of the New York Times in July 1972. And at this point, only 74 individuals remain alive. 128 individuals have died from syphilis. 40 wives have been infected. 19 kids have developed congenital syphilis. And zero people have been prosecuted for what was done in this rural county of Alabama for 40 years in this country. And the reason we share this story is because I really want to generate a discussion with you guys on, on how this has changed what we do in 2020. I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Boy, what a terrible story, Dr. Z. So many problems in this. And it's, it's something that's frustrating to me because I, I like to think that, you know, most people are good and they're going to do the right thing. And here's an example of just disgusting exploitation after disgusting exploitation for years and years. I think, you know, the fallout from this, you know, the the harm it did to the people who were involved in the study and around the study is a, you know, immense tragedy, but the effect it has on studies today 
on trust, on trying to get people to enroll in studies that are ethical and are good is still there. So the damage these people did is, is tremendous. It's disgusting. And, and the, you know, we did learn a lot from this. And before and after this, a lot of rules were put in place. And we have human protection, uh, research protection panels now that all of our studies need to go through. But I think at the end of the day, it's up to us as researchers to be ethical. I mean, you have to follow the rules, but you have a higher uh, higher calling than that. You have to really do things that are going to help people. And um, the, these people failed as human beings. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to echo that. I When you think about the way that this evolved and how it was handled, it wasn't one bad decision. It was a concophony of decision after decision after decision. The damage that was done is, uh, I mean, it's almost irreparable. What was good that came out of this was the current regulations that we now have in place. So it was from this experience that we now have mandatory informed consent. It was from this experience that we now have independent institutional review boards that are composed of experts in research at each of the various hospitals. And I think that people need to maybe know this. And I there's probably a lot that don't know that what goes on behind the scenes with respect to research. But by the time a protocol or research protocol is open, it has been discussed ad nauseum by multiple people that are independent, non-biased, experts in research, experts in protecting research participants' rights to make sure that the way that the study is designed and the way that it's implemented is done so in a manner that respects an individual participant's decision-making capacity and autonomy. And this is why before any research is done on anything with human subjects, this is why we have that discussion of informed consent, where we describe to the, the potential participant what we're proposing to do. We're telling them what the potential benefits of participating are, if there are any. We're telling them what the potential risks of participation are to allow them to make the decision, knowing all of the facts, whether or not it's something that they want to participate in. Every one of these episodes, Jeremy, we have uh, Dr. Z start off a riddle and it ends in a word of the day. And today's word was going to be IRB. So maybe we can just jump into the word of the day as part of this Tuskegee discussion. IRB is Institutional Review Board. It's usually part of a human investigation committee. And uh, as you said, there's um, multiple members who are experts in research, but also are trained in the ethics of studies. And you have to have members of the community as well. So not just researchers. You have to have um, non-researchers, non-scientists on the committee. And that's important for a lot of reasons. You know, sometimes as scientists, we could get blinders on and miss some things that people who aren't in our profession might see. And also sometimes when we're doing this informed consent, you want things to be understandable to somebody who doesn't live in this, uh, you know, different language of medicine. They really help us out there. There's a lot of rules around this 
this IRB and, and some of it comes from Tuskegee. There was before that, you know, the Nazis did some very unethical research experiments and there was a Nuremberg committee that made up some rules about research ethics and there was the declaration of Helsinki. And then after Tuskegee, there was congressional hearings and they put together a commission about protection of human research subjects, which ended in the Belmont report. And all of these things have a lot of the, the principles you brought up. Studies should have beneficence. They should do good things for the community. You need to have informed consent. People need to be aware of the risks and potential benefits of the study. The study has to have scientific merit. We don't want to put people into a study that's not going to bring new information. It would just be a waste of their participation. And I think importantly, what they didn't have in Tuskegee, they didn't have informed consent. They had coercion. They had people driving patients and bringing them food and things that made them participate in a study that they might not have otherwise. They didn't get uh, exposed to the alternatives to being on the study, like getting penicillin and being cured, and who wouldn't take that alternative. They had a breach of confidentiality. I mean, they were reporting to other doctors that these patients had syphilis and that they shouldn't treat them. So they didn't respect the patient's autonomy to make decisions. They used deception, all sorts of things that an IRB would flag now. So I, I think with that as a background, maybe we can have a little discussion about IRB. And I know you, you sat on the IRB at St. Jude's for several years. Is that right? Yeah, I was a voting member for four years and then was the vice president of our IRB for two. As a sort of a young researcher, uh, amongst two very experienced researchers, the IRB frustrates me to no end, right? We are, we, so we come up with an idea that we want to test. We come up with a, a concept like vitamin D improves pain in sickle cell disease. So I design an experiment and then I send it to the IRB along with all the forms that I'm going to have patients look at along with all of the sort of surveys that may be included along with my protocol of what labs I'm going to draw. And that gets to your desk at the IRBS. Both of you have been active participants in IRBs who look at these studies. So this gets to your desk. And then what happens? It depends upon the institution because each institution has its own IRB and they probably each function a little bit differently. The, the IRB at St. Jude, the mission is not to be obstructionist and the mission is not to make the investigator's life difficult. It really is supposed to be a partnership where we try to collaborate with the investigator to design the most ethical trial that we can possibly design. We want you to be able to answer your question, but we also want to remove the blinders for some of the things that you may be trying to do. You know, So for example, a really simple example is, do you really need to draw that much blood? Can you get by and answer your question with less invasive procedures? Are you doing everything that you can to make sure that you protect an individual's confidentiality? It can come across sometimes as being a little bit of an obstructionist. Best way to think about it is these are experts in their field and they really want me to succeed and they want the trial to succeed and they want to know what the science is, but we need to work together to make it so that it is as safe as it can be for participants. And so I, I would say, too, that, you know, the IRB is composed of volunteers, and usually these are volunteers with a lot of clinical trials experience, m many of whom are going to be physicians. And that's important so that they can understand the science and also the, the risk um, indications. But they're also composed of lay people. You know, our committee might have uh, 
a lawyer who works in the community on it or uh, somebody's niece who, who participates. And all of those people go through some training. So they learn about research ethics. They learn about the Tuskegee experiments and, and um, you know, get um, training in what the rules are to protect patients. And then when you put in your vitamin D study, you put in a lot of paperwork around it, which, you know, as an investigator, I, I also feel the, the bureaucracy there. But uh, it's important because then that that goes to the committee. And usually uh, about a week before we review a, a protocol, we get all of the paperwork, the study design, and importantly, the consent forms. So these are, you know, written documents that when a person enrolls on the study, they're going to go through and they detail why you're doing the study, who's going to be on the study, um, what the risks of the study are, what the alternatives are. If you have a problem with the study, how you withdraw from the study, if you, you know, what's going to be done with all your data, all of these details so that the person really knows what they're getting into. And those are vetted to make sure that they're accurate, readable, and understandable at the level of the person who's going to participate in the study. And as Jeremy said, the IRBs are all local. So you have a community input. And that brings up a really good point, though, Dr. Mike, in that, you know, as we're going through this era of sickle cell therapeutics exploding the way that it is, it seems like all of these drugs are very nuanced in the way that they work. And the, the, the science behind it is getting increasingly complex right? What are you guys doing sort of clinically with your patients to make sure that they really understand the, the concept of the study? They really understand the science. I mean, just as an example, I mean, we have like two drugs that target sort of this nitric oxide soluble guanylate cyclase pathway, right? That science is nuanced, right? How do you, how do, how do you have these? What are you guys doing? What tools are you using to Make sure your patients are understanding the science behind research so that they can make an informed decision about whether or not they want to participate. Yeah, so I, I think um, that's a really challenging thing always in clinical trials, especially, but in medicine outside of clinical trials. So I, I think one thing on clinical trials, everybody on a clinical trial is a volunteer. You know, obviously, you don't put patients on trials unless they choose to be on the trial. So that's a a big screener right there. You know, we mentioned trials to a lot of people and they're not interested at all. But for those who are interested, it's a long discussion. And some of that is going over the items in the consent form, but some of it is explaining, like you said, how does this drug work? Why would, why would we want to try it in you? What does the study look like? In some of the trials, you get a placebo potentially, and that's an important thing to understand. You may not even be getting the drug. You may go on the trial because you think you're going to get the drug and you need to be informed about that. And I think that's part of the art of medicine is really finding people where they're at and being able to have a discussion at their level and maybe build up the knowledge that they need to have to understand the treatment. Um, and I don't think that comes out of a textbook or a, a recipe book. It's, I think, a skill that you learn over time to be able to really gauge patients' understanding and, and educate them to get to to the level of understanding that they need to make an informed decision. I will echo exactly what Dr. Mike just said. I, you know, we we enroll in quite a number of clinical trials at St. Jude, and the the key to it is just open dialogue and communication, and really just taking the time to meet the person where they are 
and and educate them and answer their questions. And sometimes you just can't explain it well enough. You know, there are people that, you know, just don't understand enough to be able to make an informed decision about it. Um, and those are people that just don't get enrolled. It's like very similar to, you know, if I were to take a car into a mechanic shop and they tried to explain to me how they were going to fix my transmission, I would be completely lost. Um, I would never be able to understand that conversation. It's effort, time, trust, and education. I like that. So I guess as we're wrapping up this segment, I guess I want to just use you guys as a sounding board in the sense that as as I was going through and, and refreshing myself on Tuskegee, the recency of it struck me again, once again. It's like, we're not talking about that long ago, right? This is very well uh, an experiment that could have included our patients' grandfathers or uncles or, I mean, recent rel- closely related relatives. And it just sort of reminded me that this is, this is kind of a fresh wound. So, so, so when our community of patients is talking about distrust with the medical industrial complex that we have, it, it, it's really coming from a place of a fresh wound here. And, and, and I think this was a really good reminder to me that you know there, there's a, a real need for refreshing ourselves on, on the sensitivity that's required in letting our patients know that we're, we're committed to being fully transparent with them and committed to pushing the needle on outcomes in sickle cell disease without exposing our patients to risk. I don't know. That's just the feeling that I had when I read this once again, and I wanted to share that with you guys. I have a little bit of a different perspective on that. So tell me, I look at this and then I turn around and look at what our patients have achieved over the last five, six years. We now have four drugs that are approved for sickle cell disease. And it's because they trusted us. They had high participation rates in several landmark trials that were going on at the same time. And it is because they trusted us, despite the academic community's history with with things like Tuskegee, and we were able to move the bar. So I I think that this is actually an example of how beautiful this sickle cell community is and the promise of what they can achieve. Well said. I love that. I love that. Very well said. I think there's no better way to finish off that segment. Warriors, keep doing what you're doing. Keep sticking with us um, and keep keep trusting us. We're, we're going to get through this together. Cheat Codes is brought to you today by Global Blood Therapeutics. GBT is a biopharmaceutical company committed to discovering, developing, and delivering life-changing treatments that provide hope to underserved patient communities, including sickle cell disease. GBT is grounded by a mission-driven culture and built with a team of experienced and passionate people committed to making a difference in the communities it serves. Cheat Codes is grateful to GBT for supporting today's episode and for serving the sickle cell community.
All right, Warriors. So we're going to take advantage of the fact that we have a um, world-renowned expert in sickle cell disease and clinical trials and drug development with us on this episode. And Dr. Jeremy Estep from St. Jude in Memphis, Tennessee. He's a good friend, but also a very accomplished colleague. And Dr. Mike, do you have any idea what Dr. Dr. Jeremy is going to be talking to us about today? I do, and I'm looking forward to it. I, I think we, you know we often focus on how little we've accomplished in sickle cell and how much work we have left to do. And, and I think it's always important for us to keep our eye on the ball. But there have been a lot of accomplishments, and we do have a long legacy of clinical research and findings in, in the sickle cell community. And I think we're going to walk through that today, the history of clinical trials in sickle cell. So, yeah, let's get to it. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. Yeah. So, you know, this is a, this is a really exciting topic for me anyway, because the, we now have four drugs that are approved and we went for decades with having either none or one. And I want to try to talk about the way that these trials evolved um, specifically because I, I want to use it as a narrative to dispel a very prominent rumor in the sickle cell community, both in the patient population and from providers. And that is this notion of severe sickle cell disease. This, this notion came up first in the landmark study, 1995, the multicenter study of hydroxyurea trial. The, the results were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. This was the first therapeutic trial to show benefit for sickle cell disease. And the trial basically was um, a randomized control, placebo-controlled trial, where they enrolled adults with sickle cell anemia and provided them hydroxyurea, escalated to a maximum tolerated dose in one arm, and the other arm was a placebo. And this is the MESH trial that we went over in episode three a little bit. Yeah, there are a couple of important things to highlight about this, and it, it falls really well in with our discussions about IRB. This was the one of the first efforts to try to, to treat sickle cell disease. And because it was one of the first efforts, there were considerations put into place in the, the way this study was designed to try to maximize potential benefit of participation and limit toxicities. And one of the ways that they did that was they only enrolled adults with sickle cell disease, so no children, and each one of those adults had to have three or more acute sickle cell-related complications in the 12 months prior to enrollment. So fast forward to through the trial, the trial actually closed early because the review boards saw that there was a clear and distinct benefit of hydroxyurea during the study. And that meant that it was no longer really ethical to give people placebo anymore. Dr. Dr. Jeremy, I'm just going to really quickly, I just wanted you to clarify for the Warriors. So when you say the review board saw this, explain sort of what, what's happening as this trial's going on, the information's coming in, the results are coming in. What, what's happening with those results behind the scenes? So behind the scenes, the, the investigators are looking at the clinical benefit and they're looking at all of the, the uh, monitored toxicities. And when it becomes clear that there is a benefit and no toxicity in one arm versus another, then it is no longer ethical to give or offer the other arm. Okay. Okay. 
So a couple of years after that study is published, the FDA approves hydroxyurea for uh, adults with sickle cell disease. Now, around that time, there were a group of academic investigators who thought we should look and see if this medicine can, can be beneficial in children. So the Hug Kids study uh, was underway. The Hug Kids study was an open label assessment of hydroxyurea and treated about 50 or 60 kids. And it had very similar inclusion criteria than the, the MESH study. Now, when you say open label, can you, can you explain to us what that means? That means that there, everybody got drug. Okay, so no placebo. Everybody got hydroxyurea, no placebo. There were similar, similar inclusion criteria um, in that trial. So you had to be between five and 15 years of age and you had to have multiple acute sickle cell related complications, pain, hospitalization, acute chest syndrome. You had to have what was called this quote unquote severe disease. The results of that trial showed that you could safely administer hydroxyurea to children and that they did indeed get clinical benefit. Their hematologic parameters improved. So the, they improved the level of anemia, they increased fetal hemoglobin levels, they reduced markers of hemolysis, and they saw reductions in hospitalization. At that time, the National Institute of Health then thought that it was imperative to do a large, definitive, randomized phase three trial in children. And they offered that to pharmaceutical companies and said, we really think that, th that this, should, this type of trial should go forward. And none of the pharmaceutical companies were interested in and studying hydroxyurea in children at the time. So a solicitation was made to the academic investigators that had been doing this before. And that was how the baby hug study came into existence. The baby hug study was um, run by um, several very prominent sickle cell docs, many of which I'm sure your sickle cell warriors know. It's people like, Winford Wong and Russell Ware and Elliot Vincensky, real giants in the field of um, sickle cell disease. They proposed a trial to evaluate hydroxyurea in infants, but they made a couple of really important changes in the paradigm of how people thought about sickle cell disease. Up to that point, you had to have this quote unquote severe disease, which suggests that there is a non-severe type of sickle cell anemia, which is a fallacy. Baby Hug enrolled all comers. All you had to have was, be, was an infant between 9 and 18 months of age and have sickle cell anemia. The other paradigm shift was that we transitioned from looking for whether or not hydroxyurea could reduce the number of painful episodes that you have or reduce the number of days that you're in the hospital to thinking about it as a preventative agent for organ damage. Could we start it early enough in life? And if used appropriately, could we prevent children from having organ damage? Unfortunately, during the discussion, of that trial and during the planning of that trial, there were people that were worried that giving hydroxyurea to infants would have too many toxic effects. 
there was specifically there was worry about giving it to children while their brain is developing and growing. So instead of using the dose escalated to maximum tolerated dose, which was used in older children and in the adult studies, they used a lower dose of hydroxyurea. And that's this fixed dose concept of 20 milligrams per kilogram per day. Now, the results of the baby hug study are phenomenal and are a landmark study and are a basis for why we now recommend hydroxyurea to be initiated or offered at nine months of age in all children because it showed that it, you could reduce the number of acute complications and you do have improvement in your hematologic numbers and it wasn't toxic, but they were unable to show, at least in the way the study was designed, that, the, that there was protection against organ damage with respect to the spleen and the kidneys. I kind of came into hematology around the time that the baby hug study was published. I started having I had the very good fortune of having Winford Wong as my mentor. I started having discussions with him about how we were managing patients at St. Jude versus how the baby hug study was designed. Because we were starting children at nine months of age, but then we were escalating hydroxyurea to a maximum tolerated dose. It was obvious to me that we didn't know what the right answer was and whether or not you could get increased benefit by escalating the dose versus using a standard fixed dose, which turned out to be a grant and a study that we've now been working on for the past 10 years. Um, the final kid actually um, just came off of study in March of this year, and it's a trial called Hug Kiss, which was a randomized trial comparing a fixed dose of 20 milligrams per kilogram versus escalation to MTD. And we'll be reporting those results very soon, but it comes to the to the end of that story of how hydroxyurea has evolved. But this definition of severe disease, it still permeates both in clinical practice and with patients and with other providers because people will say things like, well, I don't have any complications or I don't want to start this patient on, you know, X, Y, or Z therapy because well, they're never in the hospital. Yeah, I find this very frustrating. Yeah. I had this discussion last week with a group of sickle cell doctors, and the question was, you know, what would you consider severe? When would you use this treatment? And, you know, I remember uh, maybe 10 years ago now, I did a little panel, and we were talking about transplant in sickle cell. And one, the first panel was about uh, how can we identify the patients with severe disease? And then the, the second one was about adult patients. And if you wait long enough, everybody's got severe disease. I mean, it, it's a terrible disease. It, it uh, does damage to your kidneys, to your eyes, to your bones. To, you know. So even if you're not having pain episodes, even if you feel like you're doing well, the disease is still there. The disease is still causing damage. It's all severe. And waiting until you got a problem is silly. So I, I think this characterization, and I, I feel like now a lot of it is a push from payers. They don't want to pay for the treatments for everybody. They want to narrow the population that they have to pay for treatment for. And so they try to put in these rules to define who can get it based on who's severe. It's nonsense. So I'm glad you're pushing back on that. Yeah, I, I mean, the we, we really need to change the way that we think about the disease. It It is a chronic 
catastrophic disease that has insidious organ damage. At St. Jude, I'm very biased, right? We are we have been strong proponents of hydroxyurea for a very long time. We're very proud of the fact that we have, you know, incredibly high adherence rates. We've got lots of support that is put in place that really facilitates high compliance levels. And even starting it young, pushing it high with very high compliance rates, we still see kids develop and organ dysfunction, right? They still are developing proteinuria. They still are having problems with their eyes. They're still having early markers of damage with their hearts. For me, it, it, it's really important to, to kind of put that in context when we start talking about these new agents, right? Because you shouldn't have to have, you know, multiple pain events to be offered a new therapy. Absolutely. And, I, you know, a lot of times people will ask you, what are the unmet needs in sickle cell? I, you know, I say, you, you don't have enough time. Like we have so much. And they say, what about with hydroxyurea? I said, still. You know, hydroxyurea is great. Everybody should be on hydroxyurea, you know, with maybe a few exceptions, but it's a hugely beneficial drug. But even maximum tolerated dose, good response to hydroxyurea, it's not a cure. There's still a lot of unmet need. We need more therapy, better therapy, and we need to institute them early because if you wait until you have damage, it's too late. And, you know, you talked earlier about trials in the design of those trials and looking at organ dysfunction in, in uh, baby hug, for instance, these things happen over years, decades. Clinical trials are usually months, maybe two years. So some of these things are really hard to measure. And we knew for a long time, hydroxyurea made a difference. We're just now 25 years later getting mortality data and it's great. Hydroxyurea saves lives. We knew that 25 years ago. We didn't have proof. Right. It's going to take a long time to get the proof, but we can't wait. Yeah. I, I mean, and that's that's one of the other things that has shifted. If you look at endpoints in these trials, right? The original adult studies looked at acute pain events. The original pediatric trials looked at hematologic response and acute pain events. Baby hug was looking for end organ damage. The more recent studies, you know, the voxalators and oxbridas of the world, they didn't look for acute pain events or end organ damage. They looked at a surrogate biomarker, right? Can we improve hemoglobin? Because hemoglobin rise should be beneficial for the disease process. That's the type of strategy that other chronic diseases have used for decades, right? And if you look at diabetes medications, right? They didn't look at, if I give you this, you know, medicine for your type 2 diabetes, do you live longer or do you have less, you know, kidney disease? Yeah. I mean, they looked at hemoglobin A1C because they knew that the hemoglobin A1C reduction would eventually translate into improved clinical outcomes. Um, and I think that that's kind of where we have to move as a academic community is we need to design trials that give us answers quickly, show safety, um, and march through these things because the disease is not going to be treated with a single therapeutic agent. I agree. In after you launch those things, meticulous tracking to show that they really do improve outcomes. So I, I think, you know, 
lowering hemoglobin A1C really does improve long-term outcomes in diabetes. And you have to show that. And sometimes it's not true, right? Like they did a study where they really lowered really tightly hemoglobin A1Cs compared to moderately lowered them. And it wasn't better. You might have assumed it was. So you got to do those long-term studies, but you don't have to wait for them to institute things that are very, very, very likely to help people long-term now. So this is, this is an amazing discussion, guys. I'm, I'm, I'm learning a ton from both of you, um, as I'm sure the Warriors are. I, you know, we focus so far on positive sort of paradigm-shifting type of studies along the way. Are there examples, though, along the way at the sort of at the at sort of the uh, I want the Warriors to get a sense of the journey being more than just successes along the way. What has come that that investigators and, and, and physicians like you guys have seen, tried and realized, man, this doesn't work. We can't use this anymore. Yeah. Have there been example? Have there been examples of that along the way? Just a couple. Yeah, just a couple. <laughs> <laughs> I have experience in a couple of large platforms. One of them was um, an antiplatelet agent named Prasgaril. Prasgaril, you know, sickle cell disease is an inflammatory condition, right? And there is some some science that would support that maybe if you could inhibit platelet activation, that that might be beneficial for, for acute events, especially. So there was a, a very large randomized trial that was performed um, internationally at 30, 40 centers that we enrolled and randomized several hundred kids uh, to receive either Prasgaril, which was a once a day antiplatelet agent, or placebo. And it just didn't work. <laughs> I mean, it, it was safe, it didn't hurt anyone. Uh, but we did not get any kind of uh, benefit out of adding that agent to the armamentarium or the repertoire. So it was very disappointing. You know, that's the way science is. You you ask a question, you answer it. Even if it's not positive, it's still information. Um, and you can build off of that for the next question. And that's the norm. I mean, the, the landscape of... Uh drug development is really a cemetery. It's, you know, the vast, vast majority of things fail. And I, I hope that that's actually reassuring to our patients because the, 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 the drugs that make it through that, you know, we're talking to you about that got FDA approval, they went through a rigorous process to get there that most things fail. And when they fail, you know, we're sad that they failed, but, you know, we're also happy that we know the answer and we're not going to use things that don't work. That's the sense that I want to convey to the warriors is, is yeah, we're, we're in 2020 with four drugs that work for sickle cell disease, but this is not, uh, this has not been an easy road and there have been many failures along the way. And this is not just like a conspiracy of pushing meds to patients who, uh, and generating profit off of medications that, you know, questionably work. This is like vetted, rigorous science that has led to an entire graveyard of drugs that have that haven't worked along the way that that no one ever hears about. But but we've discarded a lot of things along the way. I mean, uh things like Seneca Pock, right? Magnesium. The sheer Riva Pencil. Riva Pencil, yeah. Paloxamer one eighty eight. I mean, you, you could go on and on and on with uh things that didn't work in sickle cell. Um and, and some of these, you know, early on were found not to work. Some of these were, you know, 15 years into studies, 
in tens, hundreds of millions of dollars spent on these things, patients volunteering their time and taking, you know, drugs and, and the, really the risk and the commitment that goes with that. And they didn't work. And, you know, really appreciate everybody who does all that work because it's, you know, it's agonizing, but uh, we, you need to know if it works or not before we start using it in patients. And, and that's the process. I wish we had a better process, but that's the process. And when we get something that works, we really need to celebrate that because it's not easy. It doesn't happen very often. The last time I heard uh, uh, somebody talk about this is that they, they quoted a number of saying that uh, it's around one molecule per 10,000 that actually turns out to be uh, approved for an indication. Unbelievable. Wow. Wow. Huge, huge. Well, well, it's it's been really nice talking to to you guys about this, and I hope that the Warriors have really gotten a sense of the road that we've taken from sort of hydroxyurea to where we are now. And and, and thank you so much, Dr. Jeremy, for breaking that down in in a way that only uh, Mr. Worldwide can. Oh, please, I I just want them to take away the one message: the don't let don't you believe that you don't have severe disease, and don't let any physician tell you that you don't have severe sickle cell anemia because there's no such thing as non-severe sickle cell anemia. And that goes for our warriors with SC, with S-beta thalassemia, with S-beta thalassemia plus. You might not have a lot of pain episodes. You know, you might even be feeling well and participating, but sickle cell's still there. It's still causing problems. It's a serious problem. need to address it. I'll finish off with a, a quote from our dear colleague, Dr. Wally Smith, who I, I seem to refer to probably once an episode, but uh, he, he, he often talks about the hum of sickle cell disease. And as soon as you're born, that hum of sickle cell disease has started and it just keeps going. And, and whether you feel it or not, it's going to keep going. Um, so I, I echo my colleagues, um, sickle cell disease is severe and whether you feel it or not, it's happening. All right, guys, I'm going to catch you at the next segment. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Off we go. Thanks again to our episode sponsor, Global Blood Therapeutics. Visit GBT.com to learn more about GBT's commitment to advancing the treatment and care of people affected by sickle cell disease. All right, Warriors, on to uh, a little bit more of an academic segment here with uh, Dr. Jeremy and Dr. Mike. And it's my favorite segment because I learn a ton, actually, from you, Dr. Mike. Well, I don't know if you know that. I didn't know that, but thank uh, you. you. You add to my knowledge every time we do this, and I really appreciate that. So I'm, I'm sure that the Warriors also appreciate it. And, and, and for this segment, it's kind of nice when we can talk about seminal finding a interesting addition to our knowledge of sickle cell disease and have the person who's responsible for that finding be on with us. Yeah, it's fantastic because, you know, when you write these papers, you try to put it in a way that people can understand and you try to put in all the important stuff, but you only have so much space and there's a backstory. These studies take years. There's all sorts of information and you can only get so much into the paper. So to really have the expert who put it all together, you can get so much more, you know, detail and depth to the study. Um, so we did this last week with uh, Dr. McGann and, and this week uh, we have Dr. Estep. It also makes my job easier because 
you know, you have the expert on the study <laughs> there with you. So in our trying to define and classify and understand hydroxyurea, there's been a lot of blood and sweat and tears and, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of hard work and a lot of hustle. Yeah. So we're going to talk today about the hustle trial. And I don't know uh, if, if everybody knows this, but Dr. Estep, in addition to being a uh, you know, outstanding clinician and scientist, is also a ballroom dancer. I, I know he knows how to do the hustle. Um, so we're <laughs> going to talk today about uh, a study from uh, 2017 American Journal of Hematology, a clinically meaningful fetal hemoglobin threshold for children with sickle cell anemia during hydroxyurea therapy. And Dr. Estep is the first author. And I think as we discussed last week, that means he did all the work, not all the work, but most of the work. So this is a really interesting study. I'll uh, summarize it briefly, and then we can get into some of the details with with the source here. Before you summarize that, Dr. Mike, I want to ask Dr. Dr. Estep a quick question. How do you come up with the acronym HUSTLE? Oh, yeah. So throwing all the cards on the table, I did not come up with HUSTLE. So HUSTLE is the hydroxyurea long-term effects study. So that's where the, the acronym comes from. But this study was actually designed and implemented uh, by Russell Ware when he was at St. Jude. And as you will see when you go through the paper, it's got about 10 or 12 years of follow-up. So this study was actually began by Russell, and then I inherited it when uh, when he moved out away from St. Jude, which is one of the reasons that Russell is, is also listed on the paper, uh, because he remained involved in analyzing of the data long after he left St. Jude. Okay. All right. Well, Dr. Mike, I'll let you get back to uh, summarizing this paper for us. So this is, you know, as you just mentioned, a very long-term study with a large number of children with sickle cell disease. And I think it's a thing that would be hard to do outside of a setting like St. Jude's. I think there are some unique advantages you guys have at St. Jude's, you know, whether it's the close relationship you have with your patients and all of the supportive care that they're able to get there or the tracking through pharmacy um, that would be hard to do in another setting that really allowed for a really good look at what was going on. So this was uh, 230 children followed for up to four years. So a total of 610 patient years of follow-up. And the question was, is there a level of fetal hemoglobin that predicts how well people are going to respond to hydroxyurea? How, how infrequently are they going to have pain episodes? So n- not severe disease because there's no such thing, but complications, including pain episodes and acute chest and hospital administ- uh, admissions. And also looking at um, toxicities of hydroxyurea. So mostly low blood counts on monitoring, not actual clinical events. In this study, patients who were on hydroxyurea Um, were enrolled, and that was called the old cohort. So these were people who were already on hydroxyurea when the study started, and there were 94 patients. But then what's great is there was a new cohort, which captured patients as they started hydroxyurea. And so you're able to follow them right, right from the beginning. They looked at clinical events, pain episodes, acute chest, toxicities, low blood counts, um, you know, anything that might have been related to the hydroxyurea. And adherence. So how often were people filling their prescriptions for hydroxyurea? 
Um, and then laboratory values, what happened to the size of the red blood cells, how much fetal hemoglobin did they have, what was their hemoglobin level um, over time. And all of these patients were followed at St. Jude's with all of the uh, comprehensive care that goes on there. And also importantly, that meant that the way the doses were um, managed, the modifications to the doses were done in a systematic way and, and consistently uh, across patients. And then those uh, patients were, were monitored over uh, an extended period of time. And then they looked at all the data from that and tried to ask a question, which was, you know, how much fetal hemoglobin do you have to get from your hydroxyurea to really have uh, the the most benefit from from hydroxyurea. The answer came out that 20% your your risk of having hospitalizations went down considerably. So if you're on hydroxyurea at the the highest tolerated dose, then you had 0.5 hospitalizations per year compared to 1.1 if you were less than that threshold. And this study included males and females, about 57% male. Uh, 42% female, SS and S-beta-0 patients, mostly SS, um, patients uh, across a wide range of ages. So the, they were children, but, uh, and, you know, ranging from um, a, about a third of the population below age five, a third age five to 12, maybe a little less more than age 12, but the average age was uh, uh, around seven. And the lab parameters, I, I was impressed at how steady they stayed. And I think this is a tribute to how well you guys follow patients and how adherent your patients are at St. Jude. So the fetal hemoglobin average was above 20% for the population. And that was true at year one, year two, year three, year four. Um, and good high hemoglobins, an average in the nines with a, a range of eights to tens. And the size of the red blood cells was was large with uh, MCVs around 100, uh, 102, 105. And that was, again, steady, maybe even increasing a little bit over time. So I, I think it's really a, a great analysis of this because people were actually getting the drug. So many times we, we study things and we see that a drug didn't work that well, but a lot of it's because patients aren't actually taking it. Um, adherence isn't that good for you know all the, the reasons that, that that could be. And so they broke the results down into patient years of follow-up with fetal hemoglobins below 20% or more than 20%, and complications were were much higher if, if your fetal hemoglobin was um, below 20%. And I, I would caution people, I, I think, although that's a nice threshold, it is really probably a sliding scale. So if you're at 19, you're probably not much different than somebody at 21 and even if you're not getting the maximum benefit from hydroxyurea, there probably is a benefit. I, I think it's important to be able to gauge response. So that's a, a little summary, but uh, Dr. Estep, you know this study in way, way more detail than I do. Uh, um, yeah, no, I, that, was a, that was a very nice uh, kind of overview and summary of it. So the, the background of this um, study was we were trying to ask the question of or address this notion of is more better in a roundabout way. So the way hydroxyurea works is that, you know, if you give someone more hydroxyurea up into toxicity, they have a more of a hematologic response, right? It's dose dependent. Now, what you said is absolutely accurate, that any dose of hydroxyurea is better than no dose of hydroxyurea. Is there evidence to suggest that if you could get higher fetal hemoglobins that or higher hemoglobin levels, that that would 
somehow correlate to an improvement in clinical outcome. So that was what we were trying to look at here, just in a real world setting. Could we identify a threshold of fetal hemoglobin that could identify a high risk group? Um, and it turns out that it, it, it's this 20% rule. The interesting thing is, and we talk about this a little bit, is that 20% is measured by high performance liquid chromatography, right? Where you take the red blood cells and you pop them all open and you basically just get a percentage of all of the hemoglobin that's there. The nuance of this is that the what is probably the driver of clinical benefit for fetal hemoglobin is the percentage of red blood cells that actually contain a high amount of fetal hemoglobin. So this notion of F cell percentage. And it turns out that if you look at the percentage of F cells as a function of the HPLC percentage of fetal hemoglobin, that right at that 20% fetal hemoglobin on HPLC is when you see a sharp increase in F cell production. So, you know, a 20% fetal hemoglobin on HPLC is equivalent to around a 75 or 80% F cell percentage. And that is probably what we're actually showing and, and reflecting is that, you know, when you get to that level of F percentage, you're dramatically decreasing the amount of sickling that's going on in the peripheral vasculature. And that's kind of the reason that you see this inflection point in the acute hospitalizations. One of the other things that's really interesting about this paper is if you look, we also broke this down as a plus or minus fetal hemoglobin of 25. As for acute complications, at least, we could not tell that there was that big of a difference between 20% and 25% or 20% or 30%, which was a little bit surprising to us. The, the other thing is that going back to our previous conversation about insidious organ damage, we didn't do any analysis looking at you know, what kind of fetal hemoglobin levels could be protective for any end organ acquisition, which I think is really important. But, you know, it's, it was meant to show or to describe that if there was a possibility that you could safely increase hydroxyurea to get a higher fetal hemoglobin, that there was clinical benefit in doing that in pediatrics. Because there are still people that argue, well, I'll just give them a minimal dose and they're seeing some improvement. But if you do that, then you're not optimizing the therapy. Very well done study. I think, you know, really uh, contributes to our knowledge of how hydroxyurea works in uh, kids with sickle cell. I love the concept. I love the target. I love being able to give patients that target number, right? Because we, as pediatricians, we like to sort of, you know, print out trends and give things that patients can put on their fridge and motivate themselves to get you know, stay on their hydroxyurea and take it every day. Um, so giving them this target and being able to cite this paper is pretty cool. I'm curious about, so you guys didn't measure F cells, right? Going back to that nuance. We did not. Okay. And then the other thing that I found interesting was, you know, we talk about the effect of neutrophils, white blood cells on sickle cells, pathophysiology, but you find that Really, it's the fetal hemoglobin that is the key determinant, particularly in the odds of hospitalization compared to 
white blood cells in AMC. Talk, tell me a little bit about that. What, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, so there are multiple benefits of hydroxyurea therapy. It, uh, and this is kind of the way that I think about it. it. It induces fetal hemoglobin production, which reduces hemoglobin S production, and it reduces polymerization of the red cell. When the polymerization is reduced, one is it increases the half-life of each red blood cell. That's why you end up with a higher overall hemoglobin concentration. The red blood more, cells live longer. They're not breaking down. So they yep. And you end up with a reduction in hemolysis because you're not breaking down all those red blood cells. And there's less kind of chronic inflammation because there's less vasoocclusion, there's less ischemia. And that's what partially what brings down the white blood cell count. Turns out that all of those things are beneficial for somebody who has sickle cell disease. And you can quantify mathematically kind of what contributes to a reduction in pain episodes. But when you do that, the primary determinant of kind of improvement is fetal hemoglobin increase. We've looked at this now in several different things. We looked at it in this population. We looked at it just recently with respect to hydroxyurea's effect on transcranial Doppler velocities. We just presented that data at ASFO. The, the primary determinant is fetal hemoglobin for pain, but there's all of these other things that do contribute. So there is a, some benefit to reducing the white blood cell count. There's some benefit to increasing hemoglobin. There's some benefit to you know, increasing your MCV. It just turns out that fetal hemoglobin is kind of like at the nidus of all of it. It's what drives all of those changes. And I, I think too, you know, we dose the hydroxyurea to get a similar amount of white blood cell reduction in everyone. So it's hard to say, you know, the patients with the higher white blood cells had more pain because there aren't patients with higher white blood cells. We're dosing it to get the white blood cells the same in everyone. So I, I think you know, it's important to get the white blood cells down, but you can only do that so much. The fetal hemoglobin has a higher ceiling and more variability. So you can see more differences based on that. Awesome. Well, well, thank you guys. Thank you for um, that really, really nice breakdown of this, of this um, wonderful work by, by Dr. Estep here. And we're looking forward to seeing how you continue to contribute to our fields, Dr. Uh, Jeremy, Mr. Worldwide. And I think we're going to have to put in the show notes a, a video of Jeremy doing the hustle or some ballroom dancing. <laughs> Maybe a link to Dancing with the Stars. Well, we might be able to work something out. So really quickly, just as we round out this segment, give uh, give the words an idea of what you're up to. What what, what did the next uh, sort of couple years look like uh, as far as what you're trying to contribute to what we know about sickle cell disease. I think as Dr. Mike said uh, earlier, he was a lot of my effort has been involved in trying to understand kind of environmental and genetic factors that can contribute to sickle cell disease severity. I've had the wonderful opportunity to uh, work with colleagues in sub-Saharan Africa over the past couple of years to develop newborn screening programs and try to take what we have learned about management of sickle cell disease here in the United States and apply that where it's desperately needed, that is going to be my focus over the next, you know, 5, 10, 15 years is how do we take the the knowledge that has been garnered here with hydroxyurea and other therapeutic agents and how do we translate that into something that could be applicable to where, 
you know, sickle cell disease is not a rare disorder where there are millions of children that have premature death. That's the trajectory for me. That's so important. We talk a lot about how, you know, there's a 5% um, and the 95%. And so translating all these things to the 95% of patients where there's not been access to this. And St. Jude's has done such a great job of worldwide outreach in cancer, but, you know, moving that into benign hematology as well is great. Yeah, that's the that's the aim actually is to take the the backbone of the international outreach efforts from global pediatric medicine and expand it to include non-malignant hematology and that includes and is focused on sickle cell disease and hemoglobinopathies. I love it. We'll keep fighting the good fight, Dr. Jeremy. We will, man. I had a pleasure. This has been a lot of fun. Hopefully the the sickle cell warrior nation has enjoyed our chat. I, I certainly have. Well, there you have it, Warriors. Another episode comes to an end, and uh, I honestly feel quite quite positive after our, after this conversation that we've had. So, uh, you know, I wanna I wanna thank Dr. Mike and and Dr. Estep for continuing to educate us and taking some time out today to uh, make this episode happen. Dr. Mike, how do you feel about this episode? I think it's a good one, Dr. Z. I think it's our best one yet. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And uh, coming to an episode near you is going to be a St. Jude Legacy podcast, where we're, we'll we'll dive into a, the contributions that this um, world-class institution has made in, in sickle cell disease over the last 50 years and, and really, really jump in. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tease it with you by saying that most people don't know that the first grant ever given to sickle cell or to St. Jude was to study sickle cell disease. Wow. Very cool. That's some, that's some good trivia right there. I like that. All right, Warriors. Well, if you're listening to this podcast and you think that it was uh, beneficial to you, share it with someone who you think could learn a little bit about sickle cell disease. Share it with another sickle cell warrior. Like the podcast, subscribe, follow me at Dr. Z Sickle Cell and follow Dr. Mike at, at Humagineer. All right. And make sure you follow St. Jude because I mean, it really is a world-class institution that's just completely dedicated to making the lives of children with cancer and uh, sickle cell disease better. So make sure you do that and uh, keep living well with sickle cell. We'll catch you at the next episode. Peace.